The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Second part is what you do to yourself, not the relationship with the others, the relationship with oneself. And they have simply preached shaucha, that means simply stay clean, purity. Of course, this sounds as a very common sense and hygienical thing. It actually has much more to it than meets the eye. The cleanliness which the yogis are speaking about is a purity of energy. It is a purity of the internal being. That means we are having a certain hierarchy of purity. The yogis would say that this purity is more important than this purity and this purity is more important than this purity and so on. On the outer side we have the external physical purity, then we have the internal physical purity. Like for example the yogis would say that in terms of purification, cleansing your stomach is more powerful than cleansing your hands because cleansing your hands will make you clean and it's okay to do it and it's of course wonderful but on the other hand cleansing the stomach touches you deeper it influences your health in a deeper way it influences your psychosomatic things it can generate emotions you know it purifies deeper so you have external cleansing which is the most superficial internal cleansing which is deeper reaching we have energy cleansing and finally, we have the cleansing of the mind, of the emotions, of the way of thinking. That means the yogis would say, of course, the aim of this idea, the final purpose of this idea, you are not obliged to keep them, they are supposed to help you, you know, you can just push them away if they disturb you. Uh, push them to those who like them and who are more afraid of mosquitoes and who do this. We just do it as a support for you, so you don't have to fight so much with them little creatures so back to the main idea actually when the yogis speak about shaucha, the purity the ultimate goal to start with end, you know the ultimate goal of it would be an internal psychological and mental purity this is a concept which is a little bit alien to the western structure and we have to look a little bit into it the Western way of working with the mind <coughs> might define some emotions as being opposite to each other. Like, for example, love would be the opposite of hate, confidence is the opposite of lack of confidence, and stuff like this. But besides this, we see everything in the mind, in our emotions, for example, in the ideas which pop up in our mind, as more or less being equal. The yogic and tantric tradition is very surprising for the westerner because it doesn't look in the same way. The yogic and tantric tradition of India and Tibet, they would claim that certain emotions and certain thoughts are the result of a certain resonance, right? That means a person who is having a Manipura chakra resonance is automatically having Manipuristic thoughts that means a person on Svadhisthana will never be obsessed on power exactly as if you were the Shogun of Japan but to be the Shogun of Japan you have to have a huge Manipura and to think constantly only about power basically the Manipuristic person has a resonance on Manipura and he keeps on collecting only Manipuristic emotions and Manipuristic ideas, thoughts 
he is not able to think in a svadhisthanistic way. He can, for example, I don't know, sacrifice his instincts for power. You know, he says, if I'm doing sex, I'll get myself a bad reputation and it's not good for a politician. And then I will quit sex because I want power more than sex. Basically, it's kind of, he thinks in another dimension, while another one says, power, <laughs> stupid people who want power, <laughs> well, let's go to the disco tonight and have fun, life is short and those people think about power, right? This is two different people on two different chakras thinking. They get their ideas, each one from a certain source of ideas from the macrocosm. It's a resonance. Don't forget the resonance. I told you in the beginning, but very few people catch it. If you need many months of yoga to start really feeling it and understanding it. The resonance is not just an energy phenomenon. Oh, I'm in resonance with the sun, I get the solar energy. I'm in resonance with the moon, I get the lunar energy. There is more to it. There is more to it in the meaning that the resonance also works in the mind. If I am not having a resonance on Manipura, I cannot get, I will not get thoughts of anger, thoughts of, um, I don't know what other comparable emotion on Manipura. I can't, because it is not my frequency, I'm not plugged in. That broadcasting, that radio uh, station, I never catch. My radio never catches BBC, so I don't know what the BBC is saying, because my radio is not tuned on BBC. So basically, we are getting our emotions of, and ideas from certain sources. Exactly as you can get a thought of compassion, like suddenly I am feeling full of compassion, you know, so many animals get killed, so much the, the nature gets destroyed, so many people get tortured or whatever, treated badly for, I'm feeling full of compassion, you know, this is a mad world, you know, it's like a hell sometimes, look how much pain, how much strife, for what, you know, so I can look at the mankind with a certain compassion, like people are children, so where does this come from? Well, the energy of compassion and the thoughts of compassion, they come from the cosmic compassion. That means I am in a resonance with that. And if I am therefore getting a thought of anger, it comes from a resonance with the cosmic anger. There are deposits of cosmic anger which can make me explore anger to the bottom of it. Now comes the catch. The yogis would therefore say, that certain of these energies represent pure resonances and certain of these energies they represent impure resonances. That means they would simply say if your Manipura is impure you get anger, you get violence. If your Manipura chakra would be pure then you would resonate with courage with bravery, with dynamism, not with the shitty parts of Manipura. So basically everything is a matter of pure or impure. That means the yogis as well as the tantrics of India, they define our thoughts and emotions as being resulting from a pure or impure source. That is why they point always in this way. They say, Try to understand what purity is, because sometimes we can say, be pure like a child. But what is the purity of a child? Example, a child never doubts. A child up till the age of three or four, unless it is already very much spoiled by a very terrible education, doesn't doubt. You come with something and you tell to the child about Santa Claus or whatever, the child is sparkling and is full of it, he never says, ah, really, you are pulling my leg. Not a three-year-old child. Never. That means a child 
doesn't learn how to doubt. In language of yoga, a child is not in resonance with the energies of doubt and he can never get thoughts of doubt. That is why in Western rationalism we think in the terms of Descartes, dubito ergo cogito, I doubt therefore I think, I mean doubting is a matter of thinking, you know, you prove that you think if you doubt, On, but the yogis say no, it's not true, for us doubt is an impurity of the mind, you doubt if you are impure, if you would be pure, you would never doubt, there is no doubt for a person who is pure, the doubt is an impurity, so is weakness, so is anger, so is confusion, so is greed, so is whatever. All these negative things, they actually represent impurities, and when there is an impurity in me, this please remember, I am a microcosm, and I am in the relationship with a macrocosm. Everything in my microcosm resonates with something in the macrocosm, like my little solar power in Manipura Chakra resonates with the great solar power, which is the sun. There is a correspondence between the sun and my Manipura Chakra. Basically, the yogis would automatically say everything in me resonates with whatever is in the universe. Therefore, if my Manipura Chakra, so to speak, I'm giving a stupid idea, if my Manipura Chakra is having a spot, exactly as my spectacles have a spot on their lens, it's dirty. If my Manipura Chakra has a dirt on it, that dirt resonates with the corresponding dirt of the cosmic Manipura Chakra, and that, for example, makes it I am having violence. I am a violent person. The yogis say you are violent because you are impure, because you resonate with impure aspects from the universe. It's not purity to resonate with violence. And that is why for the yogis this is a very, very deep thing because the yogis say, see, this is the problem of purification and impurification. You would like to be pure, but if you are not pure, what kind of obstacles you have? Example. You are suddenly, uh, you are doing yoga, let's say, for a month, and after you hear a lot about the chakras, the energies, beautiful examples, healing, and so on, and you do it also in the class here, and you start feeling the energies, and so on, you say, wow, you know what I have learned, it's beautiful, I should go deeper, the human being is wonderful, you know, nature, this is really something wonderful. Then you think, wow, so why should I do stupid things, you know, next time when I'm going to have a flu, I know that I have a flu because I'm not having enough fire, because I'm having too much kapha, dosha, mucus in my body, I can deal with flu, there's a paper there in the back which says what to do if you get a flu, right, you know, I know how to deal with it the yogic way. Then you get a flu, suddenly your fever is 39 centigrade, panic, the western paranoia. Oh shit, it's worse than I thought, you know. I'm having a very high fever. How much do you think? I have 39. Oh boy, I have heard that this can go to the brain, you know. Maybe I'm having the acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, um, maybe it can go to the heart. No, you know what? You know what? Let's take some antibiotica and finish this thing, you know. Because I will do this next time, you know. Now it's too early. It seems I'm not prepared for it. You are suddenly plagued by doubt. Once you took a decision, now you are not able to hold to it when you are confronted with, let's see, can you really do it? Nature can test you, you know? Let's see, you said you would be trusting in your own body and in your own power. Let's see, have you got this degree of confidence? There is doubt. This doubt is an impurity. The yogis say if you would not have so much impurity, you would dare more 
you would be more bold but because you are impure you doubt now there comes even a funny exemplification okay there you are you have the first yoga flu in your life you know I mean you got a flu and you want to deal with it the yogic way no medication no right <coughs> there you do and so on then suddenly you meet with a friend you know somebody in the island a friend of you says oh I'm having a flu and the guy says oh but you look really bad you know you look really pale and oh you've got a high fee and you're not really you haven't been to the hospital oh man you are a bit crazy you know this is tropical climate it's a lot of unknown viruses here and you know don't play with it you know you don't have insurance to cover it if you get in a real trouble who are these guys have a horrible hospital system you know just go ahead what is this the person is filling you up with their fear and their shit in terms of yoga they impurify your mind you more or less by doing four weeks of yoga you got to a certain level of purity you speak with a friend and your purity has gone to the rats they filled up your mind with their own poison or you phone to your mother and say I have a fever and says you're crazy you're not taking medicine what is this you know that is impurity also it's mental impurity we don't see it that way so the yogis say that negative emotions you know that suddenly you get a doubt suddenly you get confused oh I'm just going to do this you know pack my stuff and go to Kosamui why? Whoa! in the name of what? where does it come from? is it a pure initiative? is it a pure feeling or is it impure? people never ask themselves these kind of things if this is coming from purity or this is coming from impurity if it is the right thing to do or not but the yogis always think where do our ideas pop up from because when I pick up ideas look Mary is pessimistic and John is optimistic what's the difference between them Mary is pessimistic because she is in resonance with energies of pessimism which always make you see defeat and which are basically hell like energies and John is born with a resonance in the energies of optimism which are paradise like energies which says yes we are always going to succeed basically pessimism and optimism they are not just like the two halves of the glass according to yoga they are resonance with high energies or with low energies so according to the yogis to be pessimistic is to be in resonance with the negative energies that is why the yogis say you should never be pessimistic because when you are pessimistic you are asking for trouble it's like the proverb which says the thing you fear most will always happen to you because you fear it by fearing it you think about it and you create the resonance with it if you fear theft you will be robbed if you fear rape if you fear rape you will be raped and so on it's just a law of resonance and basically therefore the yogis say our thoughts <coughs> are coming to us from very determined sources according to the law of resonance according to the eternal law of resonance and that is why accepting to be impure means accepting to resonate with impure energies and that is why the yogis have looked upon this problem very seriously they have said a person who accepts to be impure will always have more doubts more obstacles more fear more violence more this more that person will say I know I don't know why for John evolution was so easy John came to yoga and he never asked any stupid I mean he never had any conflict you know he just did and he believed from the beginning and he did and he was confident and for him this was a lifestyle you know he went so beautifully in it he blossomed with it 
And I, on the other hand, have always doubted. I ran away, then I came back, then I said, isn't this something fishy? Let's see, you know. Basically, I harmed myself. I hindered myself in stupid ways. What's the difference? The difference is that John is pure and I was not. It is as simple as that. John could not resonate with those energies. It never crossed his mind to ask that question. Why? Because he didn't have the resonance with that source of energy. So I'm trying to tell you this to show you that the yogis consider that this issue of resonance with purity or impurity is formidable. It's very important. They say if you are pure, there will be like no obstacles for you. People who are impure, they always have to confront a lot of fears, a lot of doubts, a lot of confusion, a lot of this, a lot of that, and they fight hard. Therefore, the yogis say you want to avoid this kind of useless, you know, sterile strife, then purify. If you are pure, these things will disappear from you because they do not appear because they are justified. They are impurity, exactly as you have impurity on your hands if you don't wash, and that impurity cannot attract bacteria or whatever, and it can even generate a disease. The same way impurity in your mind and heart can make you in touch with all kinds of stupid energies which will make your life a hell. You will be more pessimistic, more negativistic, more everything. So the yogis consider that the purification is a matter of destiny. It is a matter of karma. It is a ma- you can change your destiny. You know, stop being pessimistic, being optimistic. Try to resonate with the beautiful things by purification. Now some people would say, right, as idea it can be okay, but um, how do you do that? I mean, uh, how do you purify the mind? Well, there are methods in yoga for dealing with each body. If you remember, I told you that the yogis define no less than five bodies of the human being. The physical body, the bioenergetic body, the astral body, the body of emotions, the mental body, the body of ideas, and finally the fifth body, the causal body, the body of spirituality. And basically, on each of these bodies, there are methods. For example, it may be that diet, if you do some diet, it purifies your physical body. But if you do pranayama, it purifies your prana body. But if, for example, you do some, let's say, mantra meditation, it can purify your astral body or your mental body. So in this way, different yoga methods, they will touch different bodies depending to what you need. So these things, these are methods which you slowly, slowly get to learn and you have more and more of them. In the beginning, people complain of lack of methods. Those who did yoga for three years, they complain of too many methods because basically 24 hours becomes not enough to do everything you know. <clears throat> and you always wish you, would, you had time to do more, actually, because you feel that you could do much more with yourself. But leaving that as a parenthesis, the yogis consider that this resonance is everything because people never ask themselves, why do I always get the wrong idea, the wrong inspiration, you know, even in relationships, there are people who cannot fail to notice, after five years of relationships, a girl would say, after five years of relationship with guys, I always see that I'm falling in love with the wrong guy, I don't really know why, it's like I'm cursed, you know, I'm always, and then I discover something was very wrong and so on, but why am I attracted to these wrong guys, right, this is the law of resonance, it gives me the wrong resonance, it's an impurity, I can correct my resonance and then I can resonate with angels instead of resonating with other things. So in this way, 
I can even, I even have an example I always give to people to show you exactly how far this idea of resonance goes. It's a case taken from the real life. I know the son of the man that I'm going to speak about. This is an event which has happened 25 years plus ago. In Romania, it happened in communist Romania time, and it's just an example among a million, but this is one which I know personally, and uh, I give it because it's very illustrative. <coughs> um, a guy, adult guy, 40 years old, whatever, concerned of occult science, metaphysics, astrology, yoga, parapsychology, you know, person interested in this kind of things, reading a lot, studying a lot, he even liked to do meditation, things, you know, practicing a bit, a bit, but not completely clarified on some things. For example, he never had a real teacher to teach him some things. And because of this, among others, for example, he was still a smoker. He did yoga, he did meditate, but he was smoking. Of course, he knew smoking was not healthy and it was not pure, but he did it anyhow, because, anyhow, he didn't find the willpower to get rid of it or whatever. It doesn't really matter. At some point, this man who had spiritual concerns, but was still impure because of smoking and perhaps other things, he receives a message. He meets with one of his friends. This friend was a high scientist, the Academy of Science member, mathematician in Romania, but secretly he was very passionate of astrology. His hobby was astrology. And because he was a great mathematician and a very, very smart person, he was doing high-class astrology, not Sunday magazine astrology. He was doing the real stuff with mathematics and angles and everything. And this guy said, I looked the other day at your horoscope because there are some transits of planets this day, and I discovered that you are in a big trouble. There is a risk for you to get some severe physical accident and most probably to lose your life. So you should be really careful about not involving yourself in heavy actions because you might have an accident and get dead these days. So he said, according to my, if you want details, according to my perception, you, you might be involved in a car accident. So my recommendation is not involve yourself in traffic. And he said the critical day is the 13th of April or whatever. He said on the 13th of April you should be careful because if it happens, it happens most probably in that day. And he said it even says that if you'd be killed, you'd be killed by a car which is white or something like this. He told him something like this. I don't know if I'm telling you 100% true, but the idea is the same. So this guy, because his friend, the old man, the academician, was a very, very smart person and he had had some brilliant successes, he could really do some amazing predictions and so on, this guy took it seriously and he said, okay, if uh, Onitsa tells me this, then I'm going to take care of it, because he himself had read astrology and he knew it was not just a superstition and stuff. So he took a wise decision. He, took what a, he did what a yogi would do. He said, okay, this guy told me, he also looked at his horoscope and said, yeah, it seems true, right, yeah, it's a bad day. He said, okay, then what to do? Okay, on the 13th of April, I'm taking a free day from my job, and I'm just not going anywhere. No, I'll just sit indoors, watch television, read books, whatever I'm going to do. Not going out. I live at the third floor. There are no flying cars yet. I will not be in any, involved in any accidents. I stay indoors. So, this he did. And until now, what I said is very correct. That's what a yogi would have done. He, if he knows he is having a very critical moment in his karma, he would say, why not postpone it, you know? Diffuse it by waiting beyond the critical moment. Right. He did. But then guess what happened? Now comes the funny part. There he was, 13th of April, in his apartment, by midday. And then, of course, you guessed what happened. He forgot to buy himself stupid cigarettes. And there he was, a passionate smoker, closed in an apartment, without his smokes. 
any intelligent person would say, well, screw the smokes, you know, 12 hours. Tomorrow I'll buy myself double as many cigarettes and smoke until I drop. But not an inveterate smoker and not one who is having impurity in his mind because of it. Because of that, he got the stupid inspiration. He probably at that time, he thought it was a good idea. It actually has proven itself to be the fatal idea of his life. His mind, the monkey mind, but coming with this idea from an impure source, said, oh, it's not a problem. There is down here a tobacco shop just a hundred meters down in the same building. So all I have to do is just get out, go out, sneak besides the wall like a little mouse, you know. I don't need to cross the street or anything to involve myself in traffic. Go to the tobacco, buy myself cigar cigarettes, come back and spend the day in bliss with my cigarettes and my books. And so he did, the idiot. And he went down, he went to the tobacco shop, he bought himself cigarettes, and when he was coming back in those 100 meters, a car went out of its hinges, out of its control, drove incontrollably fast, went over the pedestrian lane, and squashed him on the pedestrian lane while he was just near the building and so on. And he got killed. And it was by a white car, indeed. And so he died in the day in which day his friend told him, you might die in this day, take care. This is the influence of impurity. In yoga we say if that man would have been pure, he would have not been weak, vulnerable. This is the concept, if you want, in mythology of Achilles' heel. You know, the ancient Greek hero Achilles, uh, he had to make himself a real invulnerable, he killed the Hydra, a mythological animal, and he bathed in her blood, because the legend said that whoever will bath himself in the blood of the Hydra, he would be invulnerable. Arrows and spears and anything cannot pierce him, and he will be like having a shield. But while he bathed, he was careless, and there was a leaf stuck to his heel here, so a portion of his heel was not touched by the blood of the Hydra. And then when he got out and dried, he didn't notice. Basically, this is a myth which symbolizes that everybody has a weak spot somewhere. Achilles was the heel, that's why the expression, the heel of Achilles. So basically, in the Trojan War, somebody knew his secret, and then they simply said, shoot him in the heel. And somebody shot him an arrow in the heel, and Achilles died because being shot in the heel. That means everybody has got a vulnerable spot. That is a symbol in yoga of the impurity. This man's Achilles heel was the fact that he smoked and he had a weakness to his smoking thing. And his karma got him by the nose exactly in his weak spot and led him to his death. Theoretically, if he wouldn't have been weak, he could have postponed his death and maybe by meditation and other things in time he would have become wiser and maybe he would have got to burn that karma or to do a lot of good to a lot of people, save someone's life in exchange and maybe he would have got to cheat his own death to pay it in another way. But because he was weak, Achilles heel, impure, he collapsed to it. That's why the yogis say you don't want to be impure. The more impure you are, the, you are, the more temptations and obstacles there will exist in your life. And as I told you once, Kali Yuga is a hard time to do spirituality this time, because there is a lot of temptation and very little support for spiritual people. Actually, if you are spiritual, many people might believe you are crazy and you are running after some chimera. And basically, the yogis say, if you are impure, you just make it more difficult on yourself. That is why the yogis say, purity is aiming, first of all, the idea of it is aiming at the mind, at the emotions. 
to have a pure mind and pure emotions, so to be spared of doubt, to be spared of fear, to be spared of paranoia, of greed and of all kinds of other impurities of the mind. That is why the spiritual practice itself is a purification. The fact that you flush energy through your body every day, all kinds of energy and so on, automatically purifies your channels of energy, purifies your chakras, so slowly, slowly all kinds of shit from your mind and heart disappears. If you are, for example, a violent, aggressive person, after you do yoga, for example, for three years, and you do Vamana Dauti every day or whatever, you will not be aggressive anymore. You will notice that after three years your aggression has diminished, your violence has diminished considerably, simply because you purify. Purification brings or aims eventually, not only at the purification of the physical structure and the channels of energy, but it aims at the purification of the mind and emotions. Again, try to think about a child. A child is pure and one like Jesus said, unless you become again children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't mean children like stupid, to be ignorant like a child. You are knowledgeable, but you should have the purity of a child, the candor of a child, you know. We cannot be candid anymore. Pray to God as if we were children, you know, with full confidence, you know. Believing in Santa Claus, you know, believing in all the beautiful things. No. We have become skeptical, we have become sarcastic, cynical, sour, you know, and so on. And basically, that's the story. Purity is aiming first at the purity of the mind. Now, therefore, I would like you to make, uh, to understand clearly, there is external purity, there is internal purity, which is psychosomatic already, there is emotional purity, there is mental purity. There are degrees, and the higher you go, the better it is. That means the yogis say, if your hands are dirty because you work in the farm, but your mind and soul is clean, you are wonderful. If your hands are clean, like the American psycho type of person, but on the other hand you are a total jerk, a total impure person, then it's terrible. External purity is not compensating for the purity of the soul, for the purity of the heart and of the emotions. And that is why, of course, here the hierarchy is clear. Many people still say, okay, we got the point, uh, there are points, you know, there is a hierarchy to each and every one of them. How we do it? Okay, we are going to learn methods by using colors, by using pranayama, by using uh, meditation, mantras, by using music, by using whatever, body positions, concentration of the mind, we got the point. There is still another thing. It is very often, because the yogis in their search for this purity, they have even instated a, a form of yoga. I told about it already. In the day number two of this course, I taught you how to clean your tongue, how to clean your nose, and those things. I hope you still remember them. If not, take papers from course number two and watch them. And uh, this Kriya Yoga is, I taught you last week, uh, the vomiting Kriya is another example of deeper going. And in the end of this week on Saturday, I'm going to kill, to teach you a monstrous Kriya, a full-blown Kriya, a die-hard Kriya, for those of you who really want to go into purification the deeper way. So in this way, uh, Kriya Yoga is of course a very complex system. Today in India, for example, there are three brands of Kriya Yoga. There is the traditional Kriya Yoga, which is from the Shastras. There is the Kriya Yoga of Paramahamsa Yogananda. This was a very famous yogi who passed away in 1953 and who lived the end of his life in America, in L.A. 
uh, he made there, or San Francisco, I don't remember right now, and he made there the Self-Realization Fellowship, whatever, uh, he preached mostly Kriya Yoga. His Kriya Yoga is not exactly the Kriya Yoga of the Yoga tradition, is a bit of a twisted form of it, according to the teachings of his Guru, but anyhow, it, it obeys to the same principle, it is still a Yoga that purifies a lot. Also, another Guru from India, uh, called Swami Satyananda because in the 1960s all the hippies and the westerners kept on going in, the re in India saying oh Kriya Yoga, Kriya Yoga, where is Kriya Yoga we read this book of uh, Yogananda we want Babaji Kriya Yoga and so on then this guy was very tricky and he simply dubbed his form of yoga Kriya Yoga although his form of yoga was a Kundalini Yoga and he said no this is Kriya Yoga you search for Kriya Yoga this is Kriya Yoga you know and basically there appeared the third brand of Kriya Yoga, Swami Satyananda's Kriya Yoga from Bihar School of Yoga. I'm telling it to you because the name can be delusive. Originally Kriya Yoga means the yoga of purifying. It is structured in six techniques which are called Shat Karma Kriya, the six fundamental techniques of purification. In practice there are not six techniques, there are six classes of techniques. For example, there is one which is called Kapalabhati, which is one, and there is one which is called Trataka, which is five forms of Trataka. And there is another form of Kriya, which is called Basti, and there are two forms of Basti. And there is another one which is called Dauti, and there are no less than 16 forms of Dauti under it. So basically, Kriya in practice, there are like 30 techniques of Kriya in Yoga, but they are grouped under six categories, Shat Karma Kriya, the six actions of purification, that's what these words mean. I just wanted to inform you because today I'm reaching purity and automatically Kriya Yoga and I wanted you to be uh, informed in case you suddenly stumble over some book and read it, not to get confused and say, whoa, whoa, that guy told me something and in this book I see it's something else. There are three names given for Kriya Yoga, three brands of it. The traditional one is this one, the other ones are copycats, not identical copycats, they are just derived things which are more or less close to the original Kriya Yoga. Now back to our story. The Kriya Yogis, therefore they devised in India a system of purifying. Purifying the body, purifying the energy, purifying the mind, purifying the emotions and the others. And basically many people are a bit puzzled because they say, oh yeah, uh, some of the Kriya Yogis of India say that for example if you vomit, if you do Vamana Dauti, you are also going to diminish your aggressiveness because it purifies Manipura Chakra as well. So some of the nasty emotions from your Manipura Chakra can be purified if you do Vamana Dauti. Right, we understood Vamana Dauti cleanses your Kapha Dosha and Pitta Dosha and it's good for healing and it's a remarkable thing and we are all doing it by today and it's a wonderful thing and okay, we like it. But what has it to do, where is the link between it and the aggressiveness or whatever because this is on the body what is the relationship between this and this first of all you should not forget that we are a psychosomatic thing and basically things in our body including chemicals, hormones and other things they influence our behavior if we have secret pains or stress or contractions of the muscles of the belly or of the vagina or whatever we can behave in unnatural ways we can be stressed up we can be contradictory or whatever so yes there is a connection between the way your stomach is clean, purified, relaxed, healthy, and even some psychosomatic things. Moreover, the yogis consider that in our structure, the different bodies 
are related with each other. When I described the five bodies, I told you, imagine like they are Russian dolls, one in each other, or like they are the layers of an onion. Well, the layers of an onion, or the Russian dolls, are more or less independent from each other. You can separate them and they are separate. The human bodies, they are not quite separate. They are a little bit like the colors of the rainbow. They don't have a clear border. There is a fuzzy border where they cross. For example, red turns slowly into orange, orange turns into yellow, and yellow turns into green. That means nobody can put a line and say this is where yellow stops and green begins. It's just a convention. Yellow becomes a greenish yellow, and then you don't know when, suddenly now it's more green than yellow. But there is a kind of a mixture. So in the same way, the yogis say it is impossible that your physical body should be very, very impure and that your mind, for example, should be very, very pure. Because it's true, the physical body is four bodies away from the mind. You have the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the mental body. But still, there is a link, there is a fuzzy communication. That's why, of course, everybody knows that if we think aggressively, we might get an ulcer in the stomach or a liver disease, because the way you think can create disease as well. There is a connection between mind and body through this fuzzy structure. Therefore, the yogis would say, it's like this story that you have learned in physics in primary school, when you have been given this experiment, a U-shaped tube, and with a tap down here. And if in this U-shaped tube you have liquid in one branch and almost none in the other, in the moment when you open the tap, it equalizes automatically. It's the law of the communicating vases or channels. So basically, if this is your physical body and this is your etherical body or vice versa, they communicate. It's true, not, com not instantaneously and completely, but they communicate. So the yogis say if your etheric body is full of energy, of impurity, and you clean the physical body like vomit or whatever, then in the next 24 hours or in the next 50 days or whatever, the etheric body will throw some of its impurities in the physical body because they tend to equalize. And then you clean the stomach again or whatever you clean, and the physical body casts more, I'm sorry, the etheric body casts more impurities. You cleanse the physical body more, the etheric body cleanses more. So basically what you do is that you can secondhand cleanse the energy body just by cleansing your stomach or nose or something. By cleansing the body, you have an indirect effect on the energy body and on the astral body, the emotional body, and on the mental body, the body of it. That's why, again, the yogis do not believe in this thing that some people say, oh, you might look at me and my body is impure, I'm a heavy smoker and drinker, but I'm a very good meditator, my mind is pure, and so on. The yogis say, mensana in corpore sano, healthy mind in a healthy body. There's a Greek, uh, but it's said in Latin, but it's a Greek adage. And basically, they say, if your mind is healthy, the body is healthy, and vice versa. That means the yogis say, a pure mind can exist only in a pure body, and vice versa. Therefore, the yogis would believe that if you impurify yourself big time, your mind will also have a lot of impurities, such as you are cynical, sarcastic, doubtful, paranoid, angry, aggressive, confused, greedy, something. There will be impurities, although you claim you are pure as driven snow. It's not quite true, the yogis would say. 
Of course, everything has an exception and exceptions remain exceptions. I could, I could strive now to try to really find an exception in history of someone who, although they had some impurity in the body, still they managed to have some very pure behavior. It may happen, but those are rather exceptions, <coughs> and exceptions you should never rely on them, you should never bet on exceptions. That's the idea of Kriya Yoga. Purify the body, because first of all, purifying the body you get more stability, more health, more comfort, you feel more clean, you feel more friendly to yourself, your health is thriving, your life will be longer, it's excellent. But you cleanse yourself also, because in the long run, that will cleanse your emotions and it will cleanse your mind. And therefore, practicing staunchly, practicing systematically Kriya Yoga, it makes you be more pure. And then when everybody else, you know, will have doubts, the others will say, why don't you never doubt? Answer, because I just vomited regularly or whatever, you know, I gave a stupid answer. Simply because I did my Kriya Yoga in time and I'm not so impure as you, you know. And then to me, this thought of fear or of doubt doesn't come. It simply doesn't come. So in this way, uh, this is a beautiful example or this is a clear example of the idea of Shaucha, that the yogis say cultivate purity. That's the way to understand cultivate purity. Cultivate purity on degrees with a target and with all these implications. There is one more factor that I need to mention when speaking about this purity purification issue. It's a very shocking factor, but you are going to hear about it and it's better to hear it fully informed in yoga like this. The Kriya Yogis of India claim that purification of the body is the key to perfect health and incredible lifespan or longevity. Basically their idea is that the human body gets ill and dies, not because of external factors as I said in Ayurveda, but one of the main causes is self-pollution. It's simply that you build up toxins in your body and you cannot drain them out quickly. It's exactly like a city, like a megalopolis, like a huge metropolis, which grows too quickly and then you don't have enough people to drain the water, to drain the garbage, you know, and it's like the city is choking in its own garbage. You know, imagine what would be in Manhattan or a place like this if everybody would throw the garbage in the middle of the street. You'd basically probably get the most horrible diseases and terrible things in that town in a matter of two weeks. It will be simply like dying in your own filth because of anything happening there. So it's the same with the body. The body has got a function of draining out some impurities. It drains out all kinds of things it wants to get rid of. But maybe it cannot drain them quick enough. That also depends on how much impurity you eat, how many other things you do, what kind of drugs you put in yourself, how much you smoke, how much coffee you drink, and a million things like this. And basically you can make it worse. But still, it appears that even when you are nice to it, the body builds up impurity. It's a little bit like a chemical factory. Your body is in a certain way a chemical factory. Even a chemical factory needs to be stopped every three years, five years, whatever, and restored, you know, change some pipelines, clean some stuff, because they get clogged. Even every engine, you know, needs to have its air filter and its gasoline filter changed from time to time. If you are operating a normal stove, just an oven, a stove with wood, 
from time to time every two years you have to call the chimney man who is cleaning the chimney not because you did anything wrong you just used the stove as it should be used and yet it gets clogged with ashes and with a lot of impurities in the same way our body gets clogged with impurities that means each and every cell and we have got millions I'm sorry thousands of billions of cells in this body each and every cell in the body is producing a lot of I don't know, expelling energies, feces, I don't know what to call them, the shit of the little cell, chemical products, metabolical products, of elim which are poisons, they are cellular poisons, and there are many of them, and basically all these billions of cells, they try to drain them all in the lymph system, and your lymph system is supposed to carry them miraculously, and your kidneys and your skin and whatever is supposed to carry them out. It doesn't always work so perfectly, that means even a stove, even if you operate it right, it gets clogged and it needs some cleansing from time to time. It seems that the human body is built with such a blueprint that exactly like a chemical factory or, the, or a stove, it needs some cleansing from time to time. If not, it simply builds up impurity. And the yogis say, and the Ayurvedic doctors would say the same, they say this impurity is what kills us old age and disease and finally death itself are not the result of a biological need to die they are simply the result of self-pollution it's a build-up of toxins which crosses over the red line and you start going down you are, you are choking in your own filth should find a way to get rid of it that means they believe and this is of course even in the economy of a city you probably never know but try to look at it to see that usually the administration of a town of a city spends the most huge amounts of money on garbage and cleansing and residual waters and all this it's a huge expense for civilization for a great gathering of people actually to get rid of all the dirt that you produce and it's exactly with the human body that's why if you purify a little bit the human body and if you start taking clean food and stuff like this you might instantaneously get rid of some disease or something so basically what I'm trying to tell you here is that purity, I'm sorry, impurity, toxins they, great, they take a great toll on us they are actually hardening the job of the body big time they are eating a lot of resources and a lot of energy and eventually when the toxin buildup is over a limit you start getting old, you start decaying and so on you see genetic people uh, geneticians and doctors today they believe that old age why, why do we get old actually, why do we die? Um, they say we don't really know the tissue is getting old but then they, they ask them what, why? because the tissue renews, there are new cells all the time your liver of today is not your liver of two years ago your cells are changing every three months or something so why do you worry? you know your body is renewing all the time why is it renewing in a decadent way? why is it becoming worse and worse? why doesn't it stay healthy? so the doctors, the biologists they invented all kinds of explanations which none of them really hold 
there is a genetical dysfunction that when your DNA multiplies, actually some ends of the chain of DNA cannot multiply, blah blah blah. Then what has happened with amoeba? You know the amoeba, the small amoeba, the one which can give you stomach problem as well, that's a form of amoeba. The amoeba has been perhaps the first living creature on this planet. It existed on amoeba on this planet perhaps three billion years ago. And ever since, they keep multiplying, they keep dividing from the first amoeba till today. And the amoebas are the same and they don't go degenerate, they don't degenerate. The amoebas of today are as healthy and strong as the amoebas of three billion years ago. So the multiplication is not a need that the cells should go wrong. Then the scientists, they say, wait, wait until we'll find out the complete genetical code of the human being. Apparently these days they announced they finished it. And then we are going to find out the gene of immortality. Because there probably is some stupid gene in the body. And when that gene goes on, it just tells you now you should go old. Now it's a gene. Uh, we are made old by a genetical mistake, by a genetical need. Right. The yogis do not agree with this, and they say that gene is not there and it cannot be found, <coughs> and they give some beautiful demonstrations. I would like to give you two facts from the world of science that are going to shock you, because they are fully scientific. For one of them, a big scientist on this planet, has taken the Nobel Prize in medicine for it. It's fully accepted fact, and yet we don't know how to explain them, and they contradict this. The first conclusion was that cells, the cells, each and every little cell, monocellular organisms such as amoebas or big cells, I mean many cell organisms, the cells are immortal. You have heard well, the cells theoretically, they cannot die. If you take a cell, a cell from your brain, a cell from your liver, okay, with the brain it's more difficult, it needs special conditions, but a cell, a normal skin cell, and put it in a special environment where it has all the food, all the oxygen, everything it needs. This cell will naturally feel very good, and after a number of days and weeks, guess what will happen? No, it won't die. The cell, when it feels very good, it divides. It becomes two young cells. Those two cells are young, they grow, they become mature, and after a number of days and weeks, guess again. Yes, you guessed right, they divide again, they become four. Those four divide and become eight, and so on forever and ever, from the beginning of the universe till the end of the universe. In ideal conditions, you can never see dead cells. Somebody say, how absurd, but of course there are dead cells. My skin is having a layer of dead cells. Even my hair is to a large extent dead cells. One-tenth of my plaquettes in the blood die every day. I'm renewing my blood. I'm renewing my stomach lining. I'm renewing my red corpuscles. And I mean, there is a lot of dead cells in the body. Why? They are not programmed to die. Remember, there is nothing in the cellular biology which can prove that a cell of the skin or of the liver or whatever is being programmed to live 70 years and basta. No. There isn't such a thing. A cell of your skin, put in, ex in excellent conditions, can live from now till the end of this galaxy. It will never end. It will just divide and go on. And then why do cells die in my body? They die because in my body they are not in perfect conditions. 
some of my cells, they don't get enough oxygen, they don't get enough protein, they don't get rid of their filth quickly enough, and basically they choke because it's a downtown. It's a huge crowd of them, and the body is like not managing to deal with all of it. And then a percentage of my cells dies. If that percentage of my cells which dies is bigger than the percentage of cells which is born, then I'm going down. This is the two sides of metabolism in medical science. This is called metabolism. And it has two sides, anabolism and catabolism. Anabolism is how much is born, catabolism is how much it dies. When you are a child and young, your anabolism is slightly more than the catabolism. So the result is that your body grows, your brain grows, everything regenerates quickly, you grow more than you die. Somewhere around the age of 35, there comes a subtle change, it's like a seesaw. Suddenly the balance is disturbed, and suddenly the catabolism becomes bigger. Not much bigger, you would be surprised. The difference between anabolism and catabolism is under 1%. It's a real small tilt which does the job. It tilts gently, and from that moment on you start dying more than you create. So basically even your body becomes smaller, you start shrinking physically, and you go old, and you start choking more and more in your poison. The yogis say this is not because of a gene, it's because somewhere around the age of 35, some earlier because they put more shit in their body, some later because they took care more of their body, somewhere around the age of 35, you hit the red line. The toxic buildup in your body is hitting the critical level and your cells start dying more because the filth, your, nobody cleans your city. Your city becomes more and more filthy and basically you start choking in it. Many people will say this fact in science sounds right, but it must be speculative. You are probably pulling our leg. There must be something which you didn't tell us and which is not true. It sounds too good to be true that the cells of my liver and of my pancreas can live forever. And the only reason would be cleansing. So if I can cleanse, I could actually live much longer. Right. You don't want to believe it. Let's go to the second experiment. The second experiment was done by the famous Dr. Alexis Carell who was a very universal doctor, he wrote essays about the power of prayer and things like this. But Dr. Alexis Carell took the Nobel Prize in medicine with the collective because they made an experiment, a groundbreaking experiment in America in the 1950s. They subjected to an experiment for 15 years a tissue taken from the muscle of the heart of a chicken. A normal chicken, they took the heart out and they put the muscle of it in a special device. It had electric stimulation every day, like a heart, to contract, and it was given the exact amount of blood, proteins, vitamins, whatever that tissue needed, oxygen, everything. To keep that little chicken muscle alive, they were using a five-ton machinery, which was purifying the blood, oxygenate. They had to use a huge device just to keep that little muscle alive and they kept it alive for 15 years. That means there is no chicken which lives for 15 years. A chicken lives for 5 years averagely, maximum. This muscle was kept there for 15 years. And after 15 years they concluded the experiment with the conclusion that in 15 years there was absolutely
absolutely no measurable or noticeable change in this muscle. This muscle, after 15 years, physically, microscopically, chemically, and in any other way, it looked exactly like in the first day. So the scientists, Alexis Carrel and the others, <coughs> they signed a protocol in which they said the result of this experiment proved that if we would keep this muscle here 1500 years instead of 15 years, it would still be here. It, it simply does not change. What is the difference between the chicken muscle in Alexis Carrel experiment and the chicken muscle in a chicken? In Alexis Carrel experiment it had a 5 ton instrument keeping it pure and in perfect conditions. A tissue in perfect conditions doesn't grow old. Full stop. It is as simple as that. Alexis Carrel demonstrated his thesis for by which he took the Nobel Prize is called the immortality of living tissues. Not only cells, tissues, muscles, liver, whatever is immortal. It cannot die. There is no reason for which to die. There is no clock in it which asks for it to die. It dies because of the impurity, because of nothing else. And that is why the Kriya Yoga of India has come with this fantastic claim. They say if you cleanse yourself more than average, that means if you start going into the chimney and cleansing your oven seriously, you will diminish this build-up of toxins, you will delay it considerably, and basically the result will be that you will look young much more, the old age will be postponed. There are huge examples. Direndra Brahmachari, at the age of 60 I met with him, he was looking like 40. Um, Swami Narayanananda, at the age of 61, he has photos, you would hardly give him 35. He looked like a young man, completely in the body and face. Um, <clears throat> Alfonso Caicedo, the Spanish father of sophrology, met with some yogis in India. Some of them were over 80 years of age. They had white hair, but their body looked like a teenager's body. They had no wrinkles, no decadence in the body. They, were, they are shown just in a, in a swimming suit, doing yogic asanas, headstand. And, uh, you see those photos, you can't believe that that fellow is 80. There are many men of 16 who haven't got a body like that guy at the age of 80. So in this way, many yogis have claimed that they could keep their body. Swami Shivananda at the 70-something, he was looking still very youthful and powerful, although he was already old, ridden with a disease and so on, and he still looked vital and young, and many people said, well, this guy is maximum 50 or something, 50-something. That means there are countless examples in yoga. Paramhamsa Yogananda gives an example, he gives a photo in his book of a woman that he met in Kumbha Mela, Giri Bala, or I don't know what her name is. She was a tantric woman, and she practiced all these Kriya and tantric techniques. According to the witnesses of the people, she was 138 years old or something like this, and she had completely black hair, not painted. She looked in the photo, the photo is a bit unclear, it's true. She looks like 40-ish something, and according to people's witness, this woman was 100 and something. Direndra Brahmachari claims that his own guru, Maharshi Kartikeya, with witness from the archives of the king of Kashmir, where they found his name back in time until the 16th or 17th century, he lived more than 300 years. So the more you go in the legends of yoga, the more you find out that Direndra Brahmachari, or whoever says, my guru lived 300 years plus. Yogananda Paramahamsa, 
hits the fan completely by actually saying not only that 300 years or something, but he, the guru of the guru of his guru, the immortal Babaji from Himalaya, the Christ-like yogi, has been alive for 2,000 and something years, basically reaching a kind of physical immortality. Whenever he wishes, he rejuvenates his body and he basically never reaches death. You reach many texts in yoga where they say you do dhyana bandha 8 hours per day or whatever, you can defeat death whatever that means. Basically the Kriya Yogis of India, they even gave it a physical meaning. They said, actually, the more Kriya Yoga you do, not only that you notice that your mind becomes pure and all the rest, which are typical spiritual things and very beautiful and so on, but you will notice that your body looks more youthful, that you get more health, that your toxic build-up is slowed down and turned back, and basically it seems like you can postpone it forever and ever. There have been many yogis in the tradition of yoga who are perfectly healthy, perfectly solid, perfectly vital till the day of their death, and at one day they simply said, now my mission on this planet is finished, I'm going to leave you, now I'm gone. They put their legs together, they sit in meditation, they were out of their body. That means they didn't die because of a disease or anything. They almost died voluntarily. They simply said, I did my job, now I'm gone. But it's not because my body left me. My body could actually hold on for another 50 years, perhaps, or God knows how long. That means some yogis didn't wish to explore this. They said, I finished my job, I'm gone out of here, because this is not a nice place to be. Some yogis have been willing to test how far can they push it. That's why you hear about legends. I have met a guy in India who was not having disciples, he was not having a following, he was not writing books, he was not uh, having a school, he was not having anything, he was living on the shore of the Ganga in Rishikesh and some three, four years ago they built a big hotel behind him, a complex of apartments, a compound of apartments, and then he, this guy was living in a cave, in a hut like a cave built in the shore of the Ganga very, very, very extremely modest, completely dressed in white, an old man doing his thing, and when they built this, he simply said this world is getting crazy completely, you know, and he went up the Ganga, he moved 60 kilometers up in Rudra Prayag, or Deo Prayag, in a place where nobody knows him, and he like started from scratch. One of his followers, I said he had no followers, but he had one sympathizer, who was a journalist, an old Marxist guerrilla journalist, a Maoist guard from India, a very ex-violent man and very materialistic and skeptical, who said he checked up this man and he could substantiate it. This old man from Rishikesh, he claimed he was 240 years old. Nobody ever heard this man telling lies or using anything for it. He claimed that through his yoga, and again, nobody has heard him lying or he was not the manipulating type, had no ulterior motives. He was a, com a man who just wanted to be alone, nobody to disturb him, but he claimed he was 240 years, and this journalist whom I met there, uh, a very skeptical type actually, who told me, oh, everybody around is just crooks, I know them all, you know, don't go around, they are all a bunch of crooks. He told me, but this guy, however, I must say that I've tested him and did my journalistic job with him and so on, and this guy seems to be right, he is the most flabbergasting of them all, because he is the only one who doesn't search popularity, doesn't have a following, and he keeps on saying he's 240 years. He doesn't even have a name. When people ask him his name, he says he's Shankar. Shankar means Shiva. He's just the name of Shiva. No? So basically you find them in India and in other places, legends. Don't forget that also in the Egyptian pharaoh time, 
the Egyptian chronicles say that the ancient pharaohs lived like a thousand years each and people say it must be a mistake the 15th dynasty of pharaohs they ruled for 10,000 years and there were 15 pharaohs you know all in all how can 15 people rule 10,000 years unless each one of them is living around a thousand years basically so they say no they must have put a zero too much that's stupid because of course you don't carve in stone a zero too much or you delete it afterwards if it was that stupid you know so the same is in the Old Testament where Matusalem and Noah and whoever they lived 600 years, 700 years, 800 years Matusalem lived 900 and something years and this seemed to be a normal thing again people say it must be a mistake you know the funny thing the Mahanirvana Tantra in India says in Satya Yuga in the golden age of mankind which is supposed to have been some 20,000 years ago human beings were four to six meters tall and they lived a thousand years of age therefore it's the same tradition time and again the Bible talks about giants that before there existed giants in North America they found footprints in cement in stones and those footprints are 60 centimeters long or something and when you measure them they should have belonged to people who are four five meters tall and things like this <clears throat> and basically I can go further and further but I would like to show you that we don't know everything that there is a lot of forbidden knowledge that there is a lot of things that we should investigate and the most advanced uh, people in Kriya Yoga and so on they said actually the lifespan can be extended surely if you just do a bit of Kriya Yoga and meanwhile you drink a lot of soft drinks waste your sexual energy smoke drugs and God knows what else you do of course you will ruin your health and even the Kriya Yoga will not help because this works in the conditions where everything else is perfect in your life that means you cannot screw up in some field and then just think that Kriya Yoga will do the rest but in the conditions of a reasonable life beautiful eating the right thing drinking the right thing staying away from stress you know living in the nature and so on it seems that Kriya Yoga indeed claims that people doing a lot of Kriya and these things they can stay healthy till incredible ages and they can even extend the lifespan a lot that is why this Saucha in Kriya Yoga in Yama and Niyama has a double meaning it is a spiritual aid to evolution purify your mind purify your emotions and it is at the same time having a great physical meaning for health, vitality, lifespan and so on to conclude this lecture uh, Patanjali himself in his Yoga Sutra says by the staunch practice of Shaucha one gets detachment to one's body and control over the functions of it detachment to the body yesterday I told you detachment does not mean indifference but it means the right attitude that means yogis believe that today people are having two wrong extreme attitudes like Buddha always condemned extremes to fall in one extreme or the other one extreme is to love your body too much and the other extreme is to love your body not at all when you love your body too much you become an, ado an ado idolater you idolize the body your body is your only purpose everything is subordinated to your holy body you know you have to do everything plastic surgery everything even when your grandmother is in coma and has become a vegetable and her brain is dead she still should be kept alive with artificial lung and artificial heart and your own nerve you know oh but granny is still alive no granny is not alive she has died a year ago but you are attached to the body and you refuse to see she is a vegetable and she will never come back and it soothes you to say oh but once a week I'm going and visiting my grandmother in the hospital 
who it's true she is in a coma. She's actually a living dead, which you, because of your attachment to the body, keep it there. Many yogis would say, let her go forward, you know, she will have another life, she will continue her evolution, why do you keep her in a painful condition where she cannot do anything and basically her evolution is flagging. It's a, almost a spiritual crime to keep a person in this. Ah, when somebody is young and has been in intensive care and he will recover in a few days and there is still hopes, yes, right, of course, keep the person alive. But there are situations where it's obviously the deadline, the end of the line, and still people cling to it. Even when you die, you have to be put in an elegant coffin with silk, with dressed in your best suit, uh, makeup, you know, you should look beautiful in your coffin, there should be a glass cover, what the heck, you know, you are going to be eaten by the worms and you care if you will be marble, tombs, monument, what a waste of resources to put a piece of dead meat which will rot, what is the meaning of that piece of dead meat, you know, you got rid of it, you know, you're out of it, this is a worship to the body, it's pure materialism, we see nothing else but the body, the meaning of existence is this, this is all that is, some people fall in this uh, imbecile attachment to the body, and it is like Socrates said, Socrates had a humoristic way to say, he said, people are run by their body, he said, the body is like a pig, and when I'm getting out on the street, I see each man accompanied by his pig, like his animal nature, the things coming from the body, and he said, most of the people that I see on the street, alas, it's the pig riding on them, very few are riding on their pig. That means very few people, ah, we say, but we are spiritual people, behave, you know, you are not an animal, it's spirit over matter, right? In usual conditions, people are crazy about some food, about something, you know, they would do anything to satisfy their animal, actually. So, Socrates said it well, it's people with the pig riding on the people, not the people riding on the pig. There are very few people who ride their pig, that means who control their animal nature indeed. And that is why on one hand we have terrible attachment and we are the slaves of our own body and its needs, and on the other hand we have the criminal indifference. People who jump in the opposite extreme and they say the body, no, the body is shameful, the body is terrible, you have to punish the body, the body is your obstacle, the body is the enemy, mortify love yourself a little bit, you know, don't give food to yourself, don't give sleep to yourself, you know, treat yourself meanly because you will reach immortality. These are the ascetic, the mortifying, the self-punishing, the penitent type of person who want to repent by punishing their body. And this is the other stupid attitude which Buddha condemned. He said you should be neither lenient nor, nor self-punishing. You should find the middle path. The middle path meaning exactly this, what the yogis call Patanjali says, you will get detachment, to, that means the body is good, it is nice, it is useful, it is a donkey, it is riding, you are riding your donkey, it's a beautiful instrument to have, but it should be treated exactly as what it is, not more and not less, you should not become the slave of this one. So in this way, uh, Patanjali says, by practicing purification, you get the right attitude to your body. Some people are enslaved to their body, some people hate their body. There are people who hate themselves, don't feel good in their body, they try to make themselves more ugly, more disgusting, they punish themselves, they are self-destructive, you know, anorectal fixation and all kind of things like this. And basically the yogis say that's because of impurity. It's because of impurity that people get either too attached 
or too nauseated to their body. Normally, you should have a balanced attitude. The body is good, you give as much as it is, you need to give it food, care, whatever, exactly as you take good care of your horse that carries you, but you should not treat it more than a horse. You're not going to take it in your bed and sleep with a horse just because it's a nice horse that carries you. The place of the horse is in the stable, right? So in this way you give it as much as it has to have, but not more than that. The yogis say this balanced attitude to your own body, that you feel good with yourself, is coming from purification. If you dislike yourself or you have a disharmony there, it's actually because of a build-up of impurities. Purity gives a good feeling over your own being body. The second, he said, and you get paranormal control over the mechanisms of the body, that means you might have heard that some people doing specially Kriya Yoga, Hatha Yoga, they do incredible things, they can lower the heartbeat, they can increase or decrease the temperature of the body, they can make half of their body cold, half of their body hot, uh, they can slow down the metabolic rate, they can do all kinds of other incredible things such as stop their heart, stop breathing and not need oxygen for a period of time, pull liquids through their penis like through a straw and do all kinds of crazy things which sound completely well, you know, you can't really do that. The Kriya Yogis and the Hatha Yogis of India, they have proven many times, there are many, many, many laboratory experiments done in India and abroad which have proven that people can do these things and it's unexplainable by physiology and medicine today. The Patanjali says, this comes from Kriya Yoga. If you do Kriya Yoga, you will get this kind of control over your body, besides the fact, the other thing, that you will get detached and feel good in your body, feel comfortable, feel natural. Those are the two benefits listed in Yoga Sutra for the purification, and I try to tell you the other things which derive from Kriya Yoga, from purification. So, as a conclusion, the first Niyama, the first recommendation, the first advice which the yogis would like to give to you in your life is cultivate purity. Stay pure. In whatever you do, either in what you eat or in the Kriya Yoga that you do, or if you smoke or you don't smoke, try always to cultivate purity. Purity is useful on so many levels. End of topic. With this I have finished the lecture of today. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.